You know, on Mother's Day, it's very natural, and I would think expected in some ways, to turn our attention to the world of parenting. And again, whether you are a mother yourself or you are a father, most of us at some point have had to experience parenting someone or something. I mean, some of y'all really love your dogs and cats, so I, I get it. Now, for those of you who have given birth, I can't imagine, truly, what it's like to get to know a child that you have known so intimately for a period of time. And what a strange experience, right? It, suddenly, here's this creature. You're like, oh, now I get to know this blank slate? Now, one of the most exciting parts of the early part of parenting, in my experience, too, is getting to know the personality of a child over time. If any of you have gotten to know Abe and Frankie even a little bit, you will know that each of them has a bit of a personality. And Abe is a little bit more like me, and Frankie's a little bit more like Lindsay. But it's funny how they're sort of cross-pollinated personality-wise. There's certain things about Frankie, I'm like, oh boy, that is me all the way through. And certain times I'm like, okay, that's Abe, that's a little bit more like your mom. I will say too that uh, one point a couple weeks ago when Abe and Frankie were particularly bickering, I looked over at Lindsay and I'm like, it's amazing that we've made it 10 years in marriage given watching the way those two fight. But isn't it fun? I mean, for those of you who have had to watch your kids grow, you start to see there's these little traits that are very similar to you and these traits that you can start to say, oh, this is just like my partner. Or then you say, well, this re reminds me of, of when, Uncle, when Uncle Steve did this thing that's totally Uncle Steve and this person. When I'm over with Lindsay's side of the family, I can't tell you how many times it's like, oh, well, that's a Haas trait, sort of like her mom's side of the family. Oh, that's a Haas trait. I mean, down to, like, the way that they drink their water. Oh, that's like a Haas thing. It feels like a perpetual roll of the dice to get a sense of where our kids are similar and different to us. And, you know, this is probably a good thing. I like the fact that my kids aren't exactly the same or exactly different from me. If our children were pure carbon copies, like, they came out, and it's like they came out with a sign and said, I'm a lot like you, Dad. I'm 100% like you, Dad parenting would be one of the most boring processes ever. You'd literally basically download all of the do's and don'ts that you've done over the last however many years before parenting, and you'd just say, okay, good luck. And while that sounds more convenient, I, I, I can tell who's a parent when I say that having kids was the very best and worst thing that happened to me all at the same time. People without kids are like, how can you say that it's the worst thing that happened to you. And I said, you just wait. Instead, though, instead of being able to download a series of things for, for our kids to figure out and then we're done, it reminds me a lot more like guiding. It reminds me a lot of this Northy Law Nolte poem. I'm sure you've heard this before. If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. If children live with hostility, they learn to fight. If children live with ridicule, they learn to be shy. And if children live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. If children live with encouragement, they learn confidence. If children live with tolerance, they learn to be patient. 
If children live with praise, they learn to appreciate. If children live with acceptance, they learn to love. And if children live with approval, they learn to like themselves. If children live with honesty, they learn truthfulness. If children live with security, they learn to have faith in themselves and others. And if children live with friendliness, they learn the world is a nice place in which to live. Parenting so often, again, I'm still limited in my experience. I've only got about eight years under the belt, although it feels like 50. See, best and worst thing that happens, right? You all know what I'm talking about. Parenting seems less often about the details, but about the common language that we share with our children. If we can show our children common threads of what it means to live well in the world, then the difference that they have and the difference that flourishes, well, it just adds color to the world. Because truly, if we were all basically the same exact person, what a monotonous world that we'd live in. So if we set some basic ground rules of how life works and we say, this is what I generally think is good, this is what I generally think is bad, and I'm going to do the best I can to show you that, then as they grow and they flourish, we can celebrate those differences and they're not just simply hidden away. Now, of course, this gets harder and harder and harder to do as we age. Certainly our wariness of others can cause us to start to take these guides turn them into hard and fast boundary walls, impenetrable, impenetrable boundaries. We create castles of similarity to hold against the tides of difference. And certainly the last few days in particular have drawn sharp relief to this since the leak of the Supreme Court decision. Now I've heard multiple people double down on positions that just seem incredulous to understand how someone could have a differing opinion than them on something that seems so clear. I'm sure if you've spent any time on any social media outlet or really any sort of comment page on any sort of newspaper, you've seen this at work. And certainly more recent partisanship leads us to get into camps of similarity almost to the point where we see the person across from us as an enemy. And this has reverberated into the church as well. And we used to be only jokingly referred to as the most racially segregated hour in America when we were here on Sunday. I think in 2022, we might argue that we are just simply the most possibly tribalized hour in America when we gather to worship. Now, based on the sermon title, if you noticed it, it should be no surprise that it seems that for an Easter moment to become an Easter movement, which is the series that we've been walking through between Easter and Pentecost, the difference had to somehow be welcomed into the church. In our Old Testament story, we can see how the range of similarity and difference can actually have consequences. And we can appreciate the urge, as we do today, to want to gather together in a place that is similar. And listen, if you feel bad about that, don't, because it's been happening since Genesis. Right? We're just a natural inclination. And once again, we see in this tower that they're closed the similarity was meant to be defensive. God then decides it isn't the best approach and then scatters the people through the loss of a shared language. Now, I think the first thing to notice here is God's sort of comment with the people, <laughs> the other folks in heaven, and it's like, well, you know, 
We don't want these folks to think they're too powerful. Now, of course, we read throughout all of Scripture that the separation between humanity and God is a pretty significant gulf, so I wonder if that's less about saying that they were going to achieve something and more like, well, boy, it's really easy when you think you all have the same language and you all speak the same thing and you all go the same way that you're far more right than maybe you are. And so God says, listen, we've got to take a break out of that, and he scatters the people. And this should make us continue to pause and maybe question a little bit what God's done here. Because by now no longer having a common bond in which to relate to each other, the difference has become so great that they're not connecting at all. In spite of the fact that what we can imagine, because listen, if you lived in a tower with the entirety of humanity, you got to get along somehow, right? So it seems like having some common language, some ability to speak to one another, is really important. And it's often why I find it so sad that the church has almost lost its ability to be that at times. But I think it's when we lose our symbols and the connections that we make. Now, I know I've talked about this multiple times in sermons, but I think it bears repeating again. When we go through these liturgical motions on Sunday, right? When we do this call to worship thing and this confession and we confess faith together and we bless one another and we go on our way. This is symbolic. It's common language. It's a way that we can imagine the world better than it is today. And that can transcend the language that's around us today. Because I don't think it matters how you feel about really pick any subject that's a hot-button third-rail topic in America. I'm going to guess you want to feel loved. You want to feel like the brokenness and the wounds of your past do not define you. You want to feel a place where you can be fed and cared for. And every Sunday we remind ourselves of these things. Having a baptism reminds us that we are folded into a holy community before we even have the language to speak that we entirely understand what it means. And if we're honest with each other, this holy community that welcomes all of us is still a little difficult to understand even when we have the language for it. And so we share through the symbols. These needs and these desires are beyond mere words, friends, and they speak to the depths of our hearts and human experience that actually do make us the same. It's the Nolte poem enacted weekly, and we are all still children at the feet of Jesus, wanting to know what it means to see the world well. It's also interesting to think about what may mean if a church or anybody that's too similar starts to continue to grow and grow and grow, and eventually it will be broken up. If any of you have been in a church long enough to survive the wars of the pantry or the war, wars of the silverware or the wars of take your pick, you know that at some point, even what feel like the most mundane things in a place where we feel too similar will break us apart. So how do we continue to work past you know, who uses the porcelain silver, you know, the porcelain dishes, who uses the silver, not at Pentecost, but at Easter, because they're too difficult to wash. How do we get through all of that? Well, I think we see how that common bond 
transcends human difference with Jesus today. This is a story that isn't terribly unfamiliar to many of you. The story builds out of the Samaritan woman at the well with Jesus at Sychar. Now she's set as someone who we need to hear as completely unlikable and likely unhelpful to the gospel. First off, she's a Samaritan. And the Jewish people at the time who would have been interpreting this story right as it was being created would have said, yeah, we are not big fans of the Samaritans. Suspect and degenerate is one of my favorite commentary reflections on how the Jewish folks felt about the Samaritans because they twisted God in their understanding. Now, she was a woman on top of that, and men didn't talk to women. Rabbis didn't talk to women. And it is a woman who apparently has five husbands. Now, the text doesn't really tell us why she has five women, and there are potentially a lot of reasons why this woman had five husbands, but we often make interpretations as to why this woman has five husbands. So if you're a reader of this text and you are in that present day Jewish sect that's becoming Christianity, you would say, this is not somebody to be trusted, not somebody to be liked, far too different. But what they find is commonality in care, commonality in hope of what is to come. And that transcends their difference. And where our text finds us today is after the conversation at the well. We find the disciples stunned into silence, but also curiosity. So they're like, why is this guy doing this thing that we were told is not the thing you're supposed to do? And in one of the funniest parts of the Bible, I think, the disciples are like, did somebody else get Jesus' takeout? Is that why he's not hungry? And here's the thing, what Jesus explains in the moment becoming movement, even in the midst of difference. That even though the Samaritan folks, according to the folks who are leading this charge, would not be the folks you'd want to expect the good news to come to, Jesus says, do you not see that the fields are ripe for harvest? Do you not see all of these beautiful people that simply need to hear this story and this connection? After all, I imagine it would be easy to think that the gospel would stay within the sect that it began, but Jesus knew that by overcoming the differences we place on others, the deeper messages would grow. So how do we as a beloved church here in 2022 in Jacksonville, Florida, with everything going on in this world, how do we live a little less like Babel and a little bit more like Jesus? And I think it might actually be as simple as connection. Keep in mind that in our gospel passage today, Jesus meets the woman at the well at Sychar, which was a public place, a place where people gathered from all around to get water and take them back to their homes. And you know, for many reasons, it would have been easier not to speak to her, but Jesus does anyway. And I wonder how we can be able to meet and tell one another the stories of our lives and our difference so we can find those similarities 
a difference. Yes, it's just as simple sometimes, friends, of finding out what sport you like, what vegetables you prefer. But it also can be listening to the stories of how this world has not been good. How the interpretations of one's life is settled on whether they're Samaritans, whether they've had five husbands or not, even though we don't understand quite at the time why. And we've done some of that already, y'all. We had our 90 Forward event where we had 55 people gathered from across the city and they just told stories about how they understood race for the first time. Those conversations grew. We have folks who are interested in meeting more. Simple storytelling. And yeah, we heard difference, but it was so interesting to find a lot of stories of similarities as well. We also have members of South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church who regularly meet with a Daughters of Abraham group. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a group of women that gather together, Protestant, Catholic, Christian folks, Jewish folks, Muslim folks, all these Abrahamic traditions gather together to learn more about each other. They tell stories, they read books, they get to know each other more. And the more that we seek to allow our walls to be permeable, to just allow to hear stories go back and forth, well, maybe we're a little less like Babel. And maybe it means that when we are dispersed, and we're not just gathered up by ourselves, the more that the good and the true and the same go with us no matter what. Friends, I'd like to think that in the end, on a Mother's Day, when we're thinking about difference and similarity, we have a God who probably looks at us as a good parent, as a good mother, as a good father, and sees the ways that we are the same and sees the ways that we are different. And I'd like to think that that good parental God likes the fact yeah, we're a little bit like God, but we're not exactly the same to each other, are we? And I'd like to think that that God would love nothing more than for each of us as beloved siblings to get to know each other a little better. And in that knowing, celebrate the beautiful creation that God created us to live in and to connect with each other. That is how resurrection comes to life. Thanks be to God.